Good morning, Covenant College. It is uh, uh, indeed an honor uh, for the opportunity I have to be uh, speaking before you today. I don't really take this lightly. I am very grateful for the chance to address you, to see you all in one place. Uh, and I'm very grateful for each of you, grateful that you're here uh, and grateful for the many ways in which you've committed uh, in some pretty hard circumstances to build up our community together. So very grateful. And, and no, on, on behalf of my colleagues, um, we're praying for you. So thank you uh, very much. The topic Chaplain Lowe asked me to address today, as part of our series, is how the study of history belongs to and glorifies Jesus. You all know that Covenant College is a strange place. There aren't very many places around that would even know such questions exist, much less devote considerable time trying to answer them. Of all the many, many reasons that Covenant College is weird, our love of looking closely at questions like this one is probably among my favorite. So how does the study of history belong to and glorify Jesus? Now, if we think about this question for even six seconds, we can see that this is neither a small nor a straightforward question. It's huge, actually. So big that it might be tempting to respond to it by repeating a lot of pious-sounding cliches about history and God's sovereignty. Jesus rules and reigns over all people at all places and all times. Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. History is his story. See what I did there? Are these cliches? Yes, they are. But that doesn't mean they're also not true. God in the person of Jesus Christ does in fact reign and rule over the past, the present, and the future. He controls time and space. In all things, Jesus is preeminent. True as these statements are, however, I need to tell you that I think they add surprisingly little by way of practical help in the everyday work we do studying history. I'm just going to be honest with you. And while they might sound like answers to the challenging prompt laid before us this morning, and they undoubtedly comfort our lives as we rest in the assurance of God's care, these broad theological claims aren't as helpful in doing the work of history as you might think. Another possible response to Chaplain Lowe's prompt comes in efforts we might make measuring and taking stock of the influence the person of Jesus has had on actual developments in human history through civilizations shaped by Christian men and women. Asking the question, how has Christianity shaped human history? Now this is a different question. It's not a new one either. Many have explored it. Over the course of Western civilization, Christianity has most certainly left indelible marks upon every corner of the planet. The triumph of Western ideas of reason, law, science, and liberty, to name just a few, are regularly credited to the influence of Jesus and his followers amid the unfolding of human civilization. As the great 19th century American historian George Bancroft stated, 
I find the name of Jesus Christ written on the top of every page of modern history. Or as Ralph Waldo Emerson put it, the name of Jesus is not so much written as plowed into the history of the world. Again, true statements, at least partially so. But I find approaching the question in this way equally unappealing and unhelpful in getting a better grasp of what we do as Christians when we say we're studying history. It turns out that the more time we spend looking for amazingly good things that Christians have done in the past, the more likely it is that we will also find a lot of amazingly bad things Christians have done in the past. They're really not that hard to find. Is Jesus to blame for those? It's tricky. In thinking about our prompt, of far greater interest to me is the question of how well and in what specific ways the study of history aligns with, sharpens, and even magnifies the tenets of the Christian faith. Does the faith urge us and propel us to think historically? And what happens to our faith when we do? Reflections on these questions take us down some different, less well-traveled roads. But I believe it's a trip well worth taking. So academic disciplines. Academic disciplines are human endeavors, each containing their own methods, theories, practices, designed over many centuries to help us explore their own dimensions of God's world. Economics and chemistry, sociology and political science, art history and marketing, physics and French literature. In doing these things, academic disciplines produce new knowledge about the world and help us solve emerging and long-standing problems. Academic disciplines are, I believe, sweet gifts from God, who makes them available for common use for the common good. But we should never assume that every theory and assumption and research method espoused by our disciplines lines up neatly with our Christian understanding of the world. Academic disciplines are complex, filled with blind spots. They sometimes lead us down paths of misguided, confused, even unfaithful thinking. As the Apostle Paul urged us in his first letter to the Thessalonians, test everything and cling to what's good. There are also times when we glean insights from our disciplines that cause us to understand features of our faith in new and profoundly deep ways. I think that's the sweet spot of learning at a Christian liberal arts college when we get to see how our disciplines unfold for us new features of the faith. Don't miss that. When we consider the nature and character of the Christian tradition, I'm happy to say that it isn't hard at all for believers to defend the discipline of history. In fact, I don't think Christianity makes any sense at all without careful historical reasoning. Among the most powerfully obvious truths about Christianity is the fact that its storylines reveal themselves in the unfolding of ordinary time. And that all of its defining features are rooted in the fact and reality of ordinary history. Now I love the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
That's for YouTube. I love the Westminster Confession of Faith. Hear me when I say that. Let's hear it for the Westminster Confession. But, I'm sorry. In reading it, I'm sometimes left with the impression that the Christian faith is primarily abstract principles and philosophical propositions that exist outside of time and space. Maybe that's just a a J problem. If you don't see it that Christianity is dynamic, actively moving through time and space, I think you're missing something. Our faith must be read historically. It has a beginning, a middle, and it is even now moving toward a final climax. It has twists and turns. It even has irony, sweet irony. Consider this, our eternal, immutable, invisible, omnipotent, holy and loving God has worked with power inside our imminent frame of timed, ever-changing, sin-spoiled finitude to bring about his ultimate purposes among us. That is huge. I'm going to say it again. Our eternal, immutable, invisible, omnipotent, holy, and loving God has worked with power inside our imminent frame of timed, ever-changing, sin-spoiled finitude to bring about his ultimate purposes for us. Gotta let that sink in. The central meaning-generating features of the faith that we here at Covenant so proudly herald, what creation, fall, redemption, consummation, it all occurs within the bounds of human time. God imposes a meaning upon it that is fixed, final, and forever. The great mysteries of our faith aren't related to the idea that its real truths are bound up somewhere above the clouds amid the imponderable bosom of the Holy Trinity. No. The mysteries of our faith urge us to wonder how an ageless, infinite God could have composed and contained his divine purposes for us in such imminent spaces of human history. And for that matter, why? To put it succinctly, the Christian faith is an historical faith. That is both a true statement and, as we'll see, a surprisingly radical one. Far more radical than you might suspect. Just look at the Bible. As I've already indicated, the authoritative word of God doesn't merely deliver fixed and timeless maxims that hover above time and space. It teems with historical writing describing real people and places, events, Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. You know, there's a lot of historical books in the Bible, a lot of historical people. The New Testament, too, offers four parallel narratives of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each with their own distinctive qualities and idiosyncrasies. The Acts of the Apostles, recorded by the first church historian, St. Luke, describes the times and places of the church's foundations. The central and defining narrative that shapes the Hebrew scriptures is the story of Exodus. Everything in the Old Testament revolves around it. The central and defining narrative of the New Testament, the incarnation, 
the word made flesh and dwelling among us, whereby God intervenes dramatically into human events to deliver his chosen people from sin, death, and the devil. God intervenes into time and to history. He did so with the Exodus to deliver people from Egypt. He does so through the incarnation to bring salvation to the whole world. It's hard to imagine that there could be any discipline on our curriculum, aside perhaps from biblical studies, which itself relies a whole heck of a lot on history, that is more easily defended or considered more essential for our understanding of our faith or ourselves than history. In fact, a common way for Christians to defend the normative truth claims of Christianity is by showing the historicity of the stories found in the Old Testament. In other words, they actually happened. By reconstructing the history of ancient Israel, using archeology span and accompanying ancient sources, doing the same thing with the life and times of Jesus, we come to see the enduring credibility of the scriptures and the truths to which they bear witness. The central fact of our faith that Jesus was born of a virgin, lived his life in the Roman province of Judea, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, that he descended into hell, and that the third day he arose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father who will come to judge the living and the dead. These aren't just parts of an ancient creed. They're historical facts, and we hang our lives upon them. Yes, Christianity is an historical faith. As the English historian Frederick Maurice Powick astutely observed, the Christian religion is a daily invitation to study history. It's been my experience that Christian believers deeply committed to following Jesus are lovers of history for the reasons that I've listed. This actually might be a good place to end. Right? We've, we've established history is suited for the task to which we've called it. It's essential for uh, our understanding of faith, and it's biblically necessary. And besides, if I ended it now, you would think this was the best chapel, maybe, well, certainly that I've ever given, because I've quit early. But I'm not going to. Sorry. Appreciate the sarcastic clapping. Before we start patting ourselves on the back, congratulating ourselves for our serious commitments to history, let me mention one small problem. A fly in the ointment, as it were. While I truly believe that faithful Christians do love history and understand Christianity to be an historical faith, we often fail to consider its full implications. As believers, I submit that we often take history seriously, but we do not often take it literally. This is a problem. We Christians experience and think about history in much the same way that we experience and think about the world while flying in an airplane, looking out the window. After a commercial airliner takes off, I'm told 
that it will ordinarily climb any, uh, to anywhere between 30,000 and 42,000 feet before it reaches what the pilot refers to as our cruising altitude. If you've ever flown on an airplane, think about how the earth looks at 40,000 feet. When I fly, I always seem to get stuck kind of in the middle of two people, right? Sometimes I'm lucky to get an aisle seat. Rarely do I get a seat by the window, and if I do, I'm almost, almost always flying over the wing, right? I think it's really lousy seats in airplanes, but whoa, poor me. But when I have the rare opportunity to sit by the window with an unobstructed vision, when the sun is shining brightly on a clear day, the view of the ground below is astonishingly beautiful. Individual people, homes, and cars are entirely impossible to make out. But you can see the broad outlines of lakes and rivers, interstate highway systems, hundreds of acres of neatly plowed and planted corn and wheat fields, and the orderly structure of planned cities. This might seem strange to you, but when I'm looking out the window on an airplane, I sometimes have trouble keeping in mind that the world I'm seeing is filled with problems, brokenness, ugliness, loud noisy traffic, wildfires, raging wars, homelessness, broken families, crime, crushing anxiety, bullying, and all manner of abuse. 40,000 feet, the world I'm looking at can't possibly be embroiled in a brutal and deadly pandemic or bickering endlessly about masks and how to reach herd immunity. From cruising altitude, I see only the broad outlines of the landscape. And all, it all seems quiet, clean, well-ordered, manageable. I convince myself that I can see it all and I can see it clearly. In fact, I can impose on this landscape whatever I want and it'll be kind of hard to dispute. As believers, I think we very often love history at a cruising altitude of 40,000 feet. From there, the landscape looks clean, well-ordered, manageable. We love it to the extent that it seems simple, straightforward, and uncomplicated. As long as the broad outlines we see reinforce the basic things we already believe to be true about the Christian faith, about ourselves, about our moral commitments, about the contemporary arrangements that we enjoy at present, we are content, we're fine. We recognize it as history, we love it, but it's easy from that height to impose simple storylines on it that comfort and reassure us. Even the narrative of our salvation, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, has clear lines and a compelling symmetry to it, which leaves us feeling satisfied. And that's why, again, those abstract claims, Jesus Christ is the Lord of history, kind of seems appealing. Who can disagree with it? In one sweeping statement, all of the messiness that might lie below is gone. 
My work as a student and teacher of history has shown me that there are important, necessary, yet troubling things that I see when I adjust my flight pattern. Moving from 40,000 to 1,000 feet. Now, that's still pretty high. But the things I see and how I experience them change dramatically at that level. Things there are a lot messier, harder to discern, a whole lot louder. There's almost sure to be a cacophony of human institutions and conflict that I'll see when I get there that I need to evaluate and make sense of, and it doesn't often make sense. The broader outlines I saw at 40,000 feet, they're gone. But the challenges of the human condition that come into focus at this altitude are visceral and they are in my face. While there are a great many things of beauty to see at this level, and don't miss those, the ugliness one confronts here is stark and startling. A thousand feet is roughly the cruising altitude I like to set when I'm teaching 20th century world history, or any other history survey for that matter. Sometimes we'll even swoop down to 500, yay, 100 feet. It's dangerous. When we do, I'm always struck at how surprised, unsettled, and even at times angry my students become when they're forced to examine the potholes, the burned out neighborhoods, the trash strewn about the landscape and the human decay present before their eyes. At 40,000 feet, it looked like things of beauty. It does so no longer. Whether it's our study of European colonialism in East Asia, fascism in 1930s Europe, or the legacies of white supremacy in South Africa and the United States, I often get these questions. Why have I never heard this before? Why aren't more people talking about this? What am I supposed to do with this knowledge? It's hard to know how we should react when ugly, uncomfortable, unexpected insights drawn from world and national history enter our consciousness and rest upon our hearts. When we examine them up close and in person, the moral weight of the world begins to feel heavier. And the culpability of ourselves and of our ancestors begins to press down upon us. How can life simply return to normal now that I know this stuff? What are its implications for how I live now? Where do I turn? Close encounters with the real and troubled brokenness of human history can leave us disappointed, shaken, and enraged. Sometimes such confrontations lead us to action, works of service, even social protest. Sometimes it causes us to withdraw into our private worlds of safety and Netflix. Sometimes it forces us weeping to our knees in the spirit of confession and lament. One way or another, deep, and abiding encounters with the past changes us. Changes us not only how we experience the past, but it changes how we think about the present. And when it does, you're doing it right. 
So what does it mean for us to think about Christianity as an historical faith at a cruising altitude of 1,500, 100 feet? How different does the faith in our lives look from this vantage point compared to the cruising altitude of 40,000 feet? What happens when we historicize ourselves in the context in the context of the culture in which we were raised? I suspect that some of you, perhaps many of you, are having that experience right now. I know from my own experience that doing so can be disorienting, frustrating, anxiety-inducing, and just sad. I recognize the links between what I'm describing and what some of you, or what some are calling deconstructing faith. Subject I know many of you are thinking about, discussing with one another, and discussing with us. The struggle is real. I get it. Deconstruction, as I understand it, involves revisiting core personal beliefs in light of the complex and often dark social, cultural, and historical circumstances that shaped your initial embrace of those beliefs. Sometimes, sadly, faith does not survive that interrogation. But sometimes, and trust me when I say this, I both have seen it and can bear witness to it in my own life, faith can emerge stronger and sturdier. In important respects, if done with earnest intent, along trusted Christian friends, I believe it can be a healthy process of coming to terms with your faith as an adult. Taking stock of which parts are non-negotiable essentials and which parts are cultural add-ons that can be set aside. Please note that when you take time to look carefully and honestly at the context and circumstances of your own faith, you aren't doing something alien to Christianity. You are practicing a faith that is deeply historical, in whose followers have always, always been a mix of scoundrels and saints, usually in the same person. Remember that the same historical book that points us to Jesus contains a lot of so-called heroes who don't exactly inspire us to faithful living. People like Abraham, remember he pimped out his wife to save his own skin. Jacob lied to his father and stole his brother's inheritance. And David, yeah, sexually assaulted a woman and had her husband murdered. What I'm saying is the scriptures itself bear witness to the problematic notions of the contexts of our faith. Reading the scriptures at a cruising altitude of a thousand feet reveals hard things about God's people. But these aren't deal breakers. Quite the contrary, they show us our great need for Jesus. And they point us to him. Diving deeply into history, yes, at dangerously low cruising altitudes, deep in the muck and darkness that you will surely find there, can be gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. That is what it looks like to live 
as Adam's offspring in a sin-cursed world. There will be disappointments with elders, teachers, with parents and other scoundrel saints. This isn't new. It's what it looks like to experience Christianity as an historical faith and to remember that those who have carried the banner before you did some pretty crappy things along the way. You will too. It's important that we not pretend that it's not there or imagine that we're immune from it. But as you do these things, remember the deeper, longer, and truer reality of God's work among us, work that he has always unfurled amid the contours of human history that are eternal, immutable, invisible, omnipotent, holy, and loving God has always worked with power inside our imminent frame of timed, ever-changing, sin-spoiled finitude to bring about his ultimate purposes among us, to point us to Jesus. God's work in this world and in your lives, secured forever by Jesus, is not over. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God in heaven, grant us patience with ourselves as we contemplate our own lives and the historical circumstances of our faith, as well as the messy worlds that shaped it, as we do, dear God, hold us fast. Make us better lovers of one another and more faithful disciples of Jesus. It's in his name we pray.